Well, blessings, everyone. Welcome back to the Theology Pit. Um, I'm going to attempt to do this uh, journal here for week two of being in seminary while my children are still awake on this Saturday night. So uh, we'll see how much screaming and yelling uh, comes into play that you can hear in the background. Hi, this is John Hall. And this is Kathy Emmons. And we're from 101.5 Ward FM. And you've just fallen into the Theology Theology Pit. Pit. All right, and welcome to the Theology Pit. This is Theology out of Pittsburgh, and not to be confused with the bottomless pit, because you know what we say here, when you fall into a bottomless pit, you die of dehydration. I am, of course, your podcaster, seminarian, theologian, host of the Theology Pit, Samson Kovach. Hang on a second. <clears throat> Excuse me there, I had a little little phlegm in my throat. Well, um, this is uh, week two, as I said, in seminary, and um, boy, the reading, I've been keeping up with it. I am... Well, about, uh, you know, lo- looking at my schedule here on my desk in front of me, I am about a week ahead roughly. Um, but you know, it's, it's a rolling week. So of course I still have a lot of stuff to do while I'm, you know, pulling a little bit, you know, backwards and forwards with the readings. Uh, I am also reading additional books for reports and, uh, things that I have to do. So it's like, I have scheduled readings for the classes. I have primary sources, I have secondary sources. Um, and, I uh, also have um, books. So right now I am in the middle of a book uh, that I have to have a report written on, a reflection paper on, on the uh, 22nd. So a little under three weeks here uh, to do that. And that's called, I'm about halfway through the book and it's called, I got about 90 pages left. So I guess a little more than halfway, but uh, it's called the drama of scripture. Uh, finding our place in the biblical story. This is actually a really, really good book. I am, I have to say, I'm enjoying this. This is a book where if you are a new Christian or a Christian, just, I, I guess in general, that has never read the Bible. I mean, you look at the Bible and you are just like, man, that is a daunting task. Or maybe you're someone who, I don't, I don't know why you'd be listening to Theology Pit and most, uh, most, most people who are not Christians generally tend not to listen to theological podcasts. But, um, if you were ever like, Hey, uh, what's the whole Bible about? What's the story about? Well, uh, the, this book, The Drama of Scripture, uh, by Craig Bartholomew and Michael Goheen, um, that's kind of what it, it does. It's like a big flyover. It's, you know, each book in the uh, Old and New Testament sort of summarized in a story in a narrative form, um, sort of like a, a, like a play or like acts that are put on. But also, um, it has a section on the intertestamental period in between the Old and New Testament, giving a, a history and account of, you know, what was going on. So it's not just, you know, so it's a nice steady history from Genesis to Revelation. And I would I would recommend this to anybody who maybe you're a Christian that, you know, you you read parts of the Bible or you have devotionals or something like that, but you've never kind of gotten the bird's eye view of what the entire narrative of the Bible is about, what the meta narrative of the Bible is about. Um, this book, The Drama of Scripture, is a, a a great book. I mean, I think that it should be required reading for um, new Christians or really uh, people who are brought up in the church, I would say probably by 
you know, maybe middle school or high school, um, they could read that where it would give them a, a nice flyover and, and, you know, a good understanding of the basic story of Christianity and what the main point of it is. And, and you can kind of see how it's connected. So, you know, it's my little like endorsement right there. Now, another book that I'm reading is, um, a a book, uh, on the medieval church, uh, by, um, Joseph Lynch and Philip Amando. I think that's Adamo, A-D-A-M-O. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. That's why when I write these papers, I'm glad I don't have to pronounce them. Now I am going to be working on one pretty soon where I am going to have to, uh, pronounce it. And, um, let me try and find where, where those, what did I do with those books? I think I'm losing my, I think I'm losing some of my special books. Hang on a second. I'm going to ruffle around here. All right. Got it here. I was looking at the wrong stack when I, when I turned around oh, and I still grabbed the, uh, the wrong ones in between there. There, there. we go. Hang on. I'm getting the right ones here. I'll get them. Oh, there we are. Okay. Um, yeah, so in April, you know, I have that book on the uh, Munster Rebellion and the Anabaptist uh, Uprising in the 1530s, and I have two books that I have to read for that. The Taylor King is one of them, and this seems to be in a narrative form. I kind of, you know, thumb through it real quick, and the other one is called um, In the Shadows of Savage Wolves, and uh, I'm, I'm not real sure. This seems to be more of like, you know, historical kind of, um, you know, telling to fit in. The... Uh, the Taylor King here is about, let me take a look, about 229 pages. And in the Shadow of Savage Wolves, no, oh, we're looking at, you know, 100 and um, getting through the, the bibliography here. And so, you know, I really should just go to the table of contents for this. About 150 pages, roughly. So I'll have to have those read um, by, well, I guess towards the end of next month. So that's really not that bad. Going back over here on my history stack, but um, the way that uh, you know my history class goes is that I have to write, I have to read um, a couple chapters each week, and then I have to do a uh, write up on one of the chapters. And I have a buddy in the class who um, does the other chapter, and he does the write up. As, you know, I submit my write up into uh, to you know we use Google Docs. We use a lot of you know the Google Classroom stuff in uh, in in all of these courses. The school is, um, has found you know the Google Classroom and the Google Drive and the whole Google network to be um, favorable. So they have us doing it like that. But um, we upload it there, and then I have to give my buddy um, a hard copy of uh, what I've written, and he gives it to me his to to me and you know that's how we then get both of them and you know it's it's a credited thing so i figured for this theology pit here instead of me just rambling about you know what my classes are like i mean you guys got that from from last week you know you you kind of know the flow of what's going on um you know i'm going to read some of this stuff to you because honestly i find church history extremely interesting and this isn't very long. He doesn't want like this paper in particular to be extremely long. So, um, you know, it, I'm just going to give you kind of a flyover and just, you know, spoiler alert. This is going to take place around 751 AD. Okay. And it is on the topic of the uh, Papal Frankish Alliance. 
So I'll, I'll, I'll read my paper and then I'll just kind of uh, you know, talk a little bit more about the stuff that didn't make it into my paper because I'm under certain uh, restrictions on the way that I have to write because he, he, he just wants more or less evidence that you have read what you're supposed to read. And not like a full, like detailed, like paper on it. So it's it's really that my my paper is not that long. It's uh, it it's like one and a half pages, honestly, double space. This is not a, a big. This is this is just a review. It's all it is. So here we go. The medieval church by Joseph Lynch and Philip Adamano. I'm guessing, uh, chapter five. Uh, reading review by me, Samson Kovach. In chapter five of the medieval church. Joseph and Philip, that's what I'm going to call them, but I have their full names in there, uh, articulate the genesis of major problems the Reformed and Anglican traditions will eventually call into question. The Papal-Frankish alliance of the 8th century begins years before the normalizing of a church-state government system, governmental system. In section one, the Anglo-Saxon missions, we are thrust into a world of extremes. The Irish monasteries focused on Latin literacy, piety, and self-sufficiency, while the culture of the continent was intellectually and morally decaying. Within section two, the Frankish mayors of the palace, we find a parallel between the inner workings of the kingdoms and the bishoprics. The infrastructure of power held by the mayor of the palace on one side and the bishops, monks, and nuns on the other. Confiscation of church land and simony was becoming standard practice. In section three, the papacy, the Byzantine emperor Leo III engaged in a two-front war, physically against the Muslim invaders and theologically against the use of icons in the churches. This combination sent many monks, nuns, clergy, and wealthy lay people to Rome, who eventually turned to the Franks for help against the Lombards due to their distrust of Leo III. By section 4, the Papal-Frankish Alliance of 751, we have an overthrow of the nominal king Childric III by Pippin, the former mayor of the palace. With the backing of Pope Zachary, Pippin is elected king by the Franks and anointed by the Pope with holy oil replacing the royal bloodline of ruling emperors. After Pippin defeated the Lombards in central Italy, he donates the church, he donates to the church what will become the start of the papal states. Lynch and Adamondo I'm going to learn how to say his name right. i got to figure that out. Um, show that the historical turning point of the Papal-Frankish alliance was not a standalone agreement by two sides, but the infrastructure that enabled both players to form this coalition. By highlighting the Anglo-Saxon missionaries as intermediaries, a sort of lubricant in the gears of history, which allow events to transpire with little influence on the exact direction due to ecumenism. Ecumenism. I'm going to have to say that right too. Ecumenism. Ecumenicism? I don't know. Ecumenism, that's the word to go for. Um, this worldview will inevitably lead to the corruption that feeds the reformers. Although I'm curious to see if Lynch and Adamon, uh, Adamant, I almost call Adamantium, um, attribute any blame here or point fingers to the, at the main players later. So basically, what we have. Um, going on 
is, the, and I found this really, really interesting in in this section. Now, um, the chapter four dealt a lot with. Um, the uh, the the monks of the time moving up into um, up into Britain, up into Ireland, you know, sent by um, Gregory the Great uh, in order to evangelize. Um, and you know all the all the heathens and all the pagans. Now, what's interesting is that their Christians were already there. Uh, there were already Christians there at the time, and that was left over from um, you know the. Uh, Oh, what's it called? The uh, Pax Romana, the, you know, the Peace of Rome, where there were these um, yeah, uh, roots that, you know, where Rome, you know, made it all the way up into, uh, you know, towards the, the British Isles and, and, and what have you up, in, up into Britain. And um, that's where you had uh, St. Patrick, like his story, you know, uh, moving up uh, into that area. But then after the collapse of Rome, you know, you had a pullback. And because of that pullback, uh, there was like this separation between, think of like, you know, the concentration of Christianity in one hand and uh, you know, the the monasteries and stuff that were kind of left over, especially in places like like Ireland and Scotland and everything where, you know, they, they're islands, you know, even, even within England, it's like, you know, you gotta, you gotta cross some water to get to England, go up through that, cross some more water to, you know, above it to get to Scotland or to the uh, West to, you know, get to Ireland. So you have these monasteries there and they were still practicing the old ways. They were, you know, focused on, um, uh, on prayer and of literacy and reading and writing and, you know, copying the scriptures and, you know, doing that, those sort of things and leading a very, um, pious and stringent life, you know, of being self-sufficient and, and working hard. And they were just, I mean, just think of like when people complain about the way Christians behave, think, Hey, these guys were kind of doing it right. I mean, you know, ex- except the fact that, you know, they were living in monasteries and those sort of things, but it's not like they were completely secluded. They would, you know, venture into the world every now and again. Um, but so that, that was there. So then, uh, you know, this time comes along and, uh, you, you get this weird, I don't know what to call it. Like it's, these two Christianities sort of meeting, okay? You have the um, Christians that represent Rome and, and you know, what was left over from the Roman Empire, and, and they're still part of, you know, the Byzantine uh, structure, the Byzantine Empire. And um, the Byzantine emperors are getting to be a little more heavy-handed with them, treating them very well. It's you know kind of kind of bad. But it's uh, you know you get um, Augustine of Canterbury, which gets you know sent sent up north around you know uh, 600 AD. And he gets up there and you know he, it meets up with the um, you know, with the uh, the rulers there, you know, the, the, the Frankish kings and those sort of things. And um, they're tolerant of, of, of 
Christianity. I mean, they don't want to go at first and they have to like turn back and the Pope's like, no, nah, no, nah, just go. You know, we, we have to evangelize them because, you know, we saw slaves from, you know, angel land called England and they look like angels who so were calling an angel. And so go up there. They have to hear, you know, the gospel. They look, they're beautiful. They look like angels. So I guess, so I guess because, you know, um, Northern Europeans are so pretty that, you know, the gospel had to come to them. So they get up there and, um, it's funny cause the story says how they, you know, set up residence in some, um, like old Roman churches that were, you know, abandoned and, and those sort of things, which meant there, there's a Christian presence there already. Um, the one, um, uh, I, I, queen, I guess, maybe princess queen. I, I'm not sure exactly what her title was. I'm, I want to say queen though. I mean, she's married to the King, but I don't understand how the whole you know, royalty, uh, titles like you know go there, but anyways, um, it was a uh, and a marriage a marriage that was you know through an alliance, and one of the prerequisites was that she was allowed to maintain her her Christian faith. So you know a bishop went with her, and all this sort of thing. So you know so the Christianity is already there now. An important thing that these uh, monks had to take with them that, you know, Augustine of Canterbury had to be, you know, take, had to take with them, uh, was the understanding of the proper date of Easter. And this is extremely important because uh, Easter was seen as a time, you know, not only celebrating the, the, the resurrection of Christ, and a high holy day, but back then, um, there it, it dealt a lot around church discipline and um, bringing people into the church, and it was seen as you know you, you synchronize that with the resurrection of Christ, the you know the, the the birth of the church, the birth of the faith, like you know that sort of thing. It had to had to be there that, that newness of life. So life. So. Um, you know, so if you were to be a Christian, you would go through, think about it like this, you'd go through catechism classes, you know, where you would, you would learn maybe for a couple years about the faith. And then, you know, you would be asked, do you really believe this? And if you did, you were baptized and, um, you know, you, uh, were, became a member of the church. You were brought into the church and this culminated around Easter. Easter was the time to did that. Now, if you had, um, you know, committed a, a a sin like you know um, something pretty bad like murder or you know just uh, one of the well you know I guess we would call like the seven deadly sins or whatever within Catholicism but that's not that's not what I mean if you if you read the um, uh, the, the earlier councils um, not the full ecumenical councils like uh, Nicaea or um, you know uh, Chalcedon or a- anything like that um, or Constantinople but if you look at like the the minor ones like like nice or in Syria. um those councils i think the council of nice was like 303 ad and you know in there it deals with things like um like abortion for example and a woman who um you know committed abortion and people like helped her like do it like you know, that sort of thing they were um sort of excommunicated from the church for i think like 10 years seven to ten years and if you if you ever get a chance to read through uh, the seven ecumenical councils, uh, a book on it um, edited by Philip Sheff, one of the I think that's that's who it is. If not, it, it might be might be Phillips. But anyways, I don't have it in front of me. But um, in there he talks about the different disciplinary uh, things that would take place. Um, 
you know, like the first stage would be that you were not allowed in the church. You had to remain on the outside of it, even like the outside of the, of the gates. And then you were allowed like, you know, up to the door. And then, you know, after so much time you were allowed, you know, inside, um, during the service, but you had to leave during the, um, uh, during the Eucharist, um, and then uh, you could get you know closer to the altar, but you would have to lay face face down, and you would not be allowed to look or watch. And you may you know may or may not have been asked to to leave before the Eucharist, and you know before you're fully restored. And full restoration would generally take place on Easter, so you have to know when Easter is. Because that is part of the liturgy, that is part of the penance, that is part of, you know, what has to take place, what you are, you know, the authority that you are subjugating yourself to, that's what needed to be done. So the dating of Easter was extremely important. Now, here came the issue, is that these monks and everything, they had a different day of Easter. Their date, I think it, I, I want to say it was, it was on the 14th. I'm not real clear of the month. I mean, I, I really would have to look into that because the way they talk about it is uh, kind of odd, but it's, it's, it's a stationary day. It's think about it like Christmas. Okay. Christmas is always on December 25th. It doesn't matter what day of the week it is, but when we celebrate Easter nowadays, it's always on a Sunday. Everybody celebrates Easter on a Sunday. That's when it is. So the, the, the date itself constantly moves. Okay. But it's always on a Sunday. Uh, well, these people, they had a set date and you know, it was like the 14th and it didn't matter if it was on a Sunday or not. That's when they did it. And it's because they were, as they said, from the disciples of St. John and, you know, most likely the disciples of St. Andrew. And so they, they were kind of frozen in time because they did not have, you know, the same type of, um, evolution and influences that, um, the, the, the Roman bishops have in the Byzantine empire and the Alexandrian Christians and, uh, you know, everything that was kind of moving, at that time there, the arguments between the um, you know, Gregorian calendar, should we use that date or should we use the you know, Caesar's calendar, the, I guess that'd be Caesarean, the Caesarean calendar, you know, and, and you know, then they finally nailed down, no, we're doing the Gregorian calendar and, and that's it and that's separating the East from the West and you, know, you still have that today between the Eastern Orthodox Church and the, um, and the, and the Western uh, Church, I guess the Latin churches, you know, uh, including the Protestants. Uh, but but this was different because they had it like on that day and you know, the argument was made back and forth but before the uh, for the emperor because he wanted it straightened out and it pretty much came down to Peter was the first pope and Rome represented Peter therefore you agree with it so that's that's what it came down to and and when they when the the um, king asked he said hey is this true that Peter is the head of the church and, and, you know, the succession of the line and, and it's, it's from Rome. And they said, well, yeah, it is. And he said, well, then what do you have to say to that? And they conceded and they said, no, you know what? It's better for us to be ecumenical, meaning, you know, staying as one, staying as one tight, you know, unified Catholic church. Catholic means universal. And we should stay like that. And therefore we are going to, move Easter and we will do Easter just like they did. Okay. So they totally capitulated that. And it seems like this was a, a tendency that they had. Now, in doing so, they, 
I believe, you know, comp compromised what would have been a, a pretty neat essential. Like, you know, I kind of want to look that up and be like, you know, maybe we should do, you know, uh, Easter on the actual resurrection day. I kind of makes more sense to me, but Hey, you know, this is a, a, a new understanding, you know, a, a new world and, Really, I mean, uh, ultimately, Easter doesn't have the type of significance within the Protestant church at uh, today that it did back then. So, you know, nobody really, I don't, I don't think they're going to care about it too much. Um, but anyways, so you have this group of, of these monks that are, you know, going around and they notice that the, um, the church over the last, you know, couple hundred years between this isolation has really become corrupt. I mean, simony taking place, and that is people buying bishop bishoprics. They're buying their way into the church, all that stuff. So they are, you know, actually keeping the people together and showing them, hey, you know, not all Christianity is like this. This is what we need to get back to. And there's this renaissance that that is that's taking place. Okay, it's called the uh, Carolingian uh, Renaissance. And so while that's occurring, then at the same time you have. Um, in Rome, these uh, the the Byzantine emperors are not treating them very well. Um, they are being uh, bombarded uh, in in Italy by the Lombards that are kind of banging on their door, and they go and ask the Frankish king for help. Hey, the Byzantine emperor is not helping us. Will you help us? And you know the one uh, says no. Oh, we're not going to we're not going to help you don't really see what's in, involved. Now, due to palace politics, they uh, th- this family was really more or less nominal heads. Like they they're kind of like the British royalty today. They don't really do anything. They just, you know, spend, you know, a couple million dollars every year just living like royalty and that's it. The people who uh, do actually run everything are the mayors of the palace. And they have all the control. And so they they go to the Pope goes to the mayors of the palace, you know, the Roman Pope, and you know, he says to them, Hey, um, if you defeat, you know, throw these guys out, kick them out, and you know, can get your people behind you to elect you king then we will anoint you as king also and give you that validation. So um, that occurs, and the um, uh, uh, Pippins, they then get rid of the king, um, the, the uh, Childric um, uh, dynasty, and they have an election, and because of this understanding with the uh, with the clergy and you know the clergy is is seen in a positive light because of these Irish monks you know and and everything that's going on there they elect this guy king and so he's elected king and the the pope anoints him and so it almost shifts back to like Old Testament times and this is where you get this first you know church state unity where now the popes are anointing kings and putting them in place. So the king kind of owes him one. So he says, the pope says to him more or less, hey, you know, 
the guys that you just threw out and you know we didn't like either they were confiscating a lot of our land you know that belonged to the church that belonged to um the, the popes and so they agree through what's called a a, a donation you know this this uh, frankish donation they give the church uh, all this land they give them all their land back and you know i think a little bit more and it starts what's going to become the papal states you know later on in history and right now we're in um, 751 AD so later on in history it started the papal states and the um, the church still owns some of this original land it's where vatican city is uh right now that um that area i forget how many uh, acres it is but it's roughly a mile uh radius but yeah it, this this is where they came from it was you know bequeathed them in that way and so now you have the popes who are you know electing kings or anointing kings giving them validity which is gaining them power in people's eyes and it's all because of this underlying work of the missionaries that more or less started with saint patrick um and and was kind of a a, a leftover of that and the benefits that they brought, and it was such an interesting, you know, period in history. It was kind of, it was kind of fun to write that little, uh, that little paper on. So um, that gets, you know, I get to turn that in Monday. Well, it's already turned in online, but I get to turn that in Monday. And then it's like, of course, I had to read stuff on, um, you know, introduction to the New Testament in my hermeneutics class and in my um, world missions class, and all of those are equally as interesting and some of the you know, some of the stuff that I learned. But hey, thanks for listening to the Theology Pit. You can check me out at samsonstick.com or on Facebook at the Theology Pit. And now it is definitely time to close down the pit. Thank you. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to the Theology Pit. Do us a favor and check out our website at samsonstick.com. Tell us what you like or what you don't like and consider making a donation. Just send a buck to show your appreciation. It's more than just money. To us, it's an encouragement. samsonstick.com. 